0: And I I love these Sunday nights. Um, as as Mark said last week, you, if you if you um, if you love the church, or excuse me, yeah, if you yeah if you love the church, you come on Sunday mornings. If you love the pastor, you come on on uh, Wednesday nights. And if you love the Lord, you come on Sunday nights. And you know it's it's a full day, but to to just close the entire weekend out in worshiping the Lord and being fed by His Word. You know what? God will hold the moon still. There'll be pr- plenty of rest tonight. You're going to be refreshed and blessed. And tonight, uh, I, I look at these Sunday nights, I call it our AAA Farm League, because every one of the guys that's going to be teaching, um, I just I see a calling in their life as pastors. But there's more to pastoring than just teaching a good message. It's to minister to the sheep. And each of them have age groups specific that they teach to, and I wanted to get them uh, in front of the congregation and to get a little bit of age variance and so tonight your job uh, is not only to receive what Aaron's going to be sharing as he is studied to show himself approved unto God a workman need not be ashamed but in addition you're going to encourage him and and exhort him and be a blessing to him so that as iron sharpens iron so one man sharpens another because these are gifts that God's entrusted to these fellas and and I want to see them used for his glory because there's a lot of churches that need to be planted in this community and so I'm blessed. Tonight uh, we had Mark Glesney do uh, lead off. He bat Batted lead off last week, and uh, now Aaron Marks is coming up, and they're doing a chronological study through the life of Christ, and uh, Aaron is going to be bringing it. I think, aren't you doing uh, why Jesus came? Oh, what do you have? How Jesus came. Oh, this is good. Uh, where, he, where Jesus came from is what Mark, and how he came. Bring it. Let's welcome Aaron Marks. Amen?
1: Hello. It's a tremendous privilege to be here this evening. Uh, <clears throat> we're going to go ahead and turn to Luke one twenty six. Luke one twenty six. If you need a Bible, uh, Glenn's going to be passing them out. Go ahead and raise your hand. Verse 26, it says... But when she saw him, he was troubled at this saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth the son and he shall uh, call his name Jesus and he will be great and he will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, "How can this be since I do not know a man?" And the angel answered and said to her, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the holy One who is to be born <clears throat> by the will of God is called this therefore also the holy one who is to be born will be called the Son of God." Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who, called, who was called barren, for with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I must admit that I have zero, absolute zero confidence in my flesh. Lord, I'm grateful that you empower us and equip us to uh, do the impossible. God, I simply want to thank you that uh, you were unbelievably faithful to us that you are sovereign and unchanging. And Lord, when you make a promise, thousands and hundreds of years prior to coming the coming of Jesus, that you are faithful to keep your word. Lord God, I thank you that we can put our trust and our hope and our faith in you. Lord God, I, I pray that this sermon would uh, fall upon good soil and that uh, your Holy Spirit would uh, use this message to instill in us a, a heart of worship and a desire to uh, serve and love you and to uh, bring the gospel into the community, Father God. I pray that your Holy Spirit would enable me to preach this message because I cannot do this apart from uh, the, the Spirit. And Lord Jesus, we, we we thank you and praise you for how wonderful you are. God, how, how you've proven yourself to be true. And Lord, how you love us and have adopted us and given us a new heart and a new identity that you've forgiven us and reconciled us. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Last week, um, if you were here or not here, I'll simply cover it really briefly, Mark Glesney covered um, essentially the origin, the preeminence, and the deity of Christ, where Jesus came from. And we must assert and affirm that Jesus is fully God. And if you were to claim otherwise, we have severe uh, problems (laughs) that we need to address theologically. Um, I must confess uh, that this sermon entitled How Jesus Came into the World uh, could have gone many directions. And and I struggled with this uh, over a couple of weeks, determining uh, what route I would take it. And I pray, God willing, that this was one of the right ways to take this. (laughs) And so this is a a simple question with huge implications to it. And this question is this, how did Jesus come into the world? It's a very simple answer. It's he was born into it. Scripture declares that Jesus, the God-man, the eternal second member of the Trinity, became man. Humanity was added to his divinity. He retained all of his essential divine attributes and was born into the world via a literal virgin. A literal virgin. And so Scripture declares to us that he was born as a baby and he grew up like the rest of us. He had to learn how to speak. He had to learn how to write. He had to learn how to eat. Scripture declares that he was born to a Jewish woman named Mary as Luke 127 our text here tonight says. It also claims in Isaiah 7:14, Matthew 1:18 through 23 and Luke 127 that he was born to a virgin. Also, it says that he would be born in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem as Micah 5.2 and the fulfillment of that Luke 2.1-7. Scripture also declares that he would be born in a barn and laid in a feeding trough. This is how the God-man, our Savior, entered into humanity to save us, to rescue us. Hypothetically speaking, Hypothetically, don't throw rocks at me. If you or I were the Son of God, hypothetically, I'm sure, I'm certain that we would have chosen a much more glorious and majestic way to enter into humanity. I'm certain of it. I'm certain that we would have chosen a much more fitting entrance as a king, as a God much more majestic and glorious, dramatic way. Likewise, if if you or I were writing the story of redemption, I'm certain that we would have skipped the gore of an actual childbirth and the awkward uh, stages of childhood and just had God enter into humanity as a full-grown man wearing the most expensive clothes driving the most expensive car studying at the most esteemed colleges making billions of dollars writing the most acclaimed books achieving wealth and popularity and fame and status i'm sure this would seem to be a much more fitting way for a king a godman to enter into creation But that's simply not how scripture declares how our God entered. It's not. You see, Jesus didn't ride a lightning bolt or a fiery chariot. Nor did he sit on a throne carried by angels into humanity. It's not how he did it. Rather, scripture declares that he came much more quietly and humbly. I'm going to read you a passage from Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled, key word, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death and even death of the cross. There's a false view that comes from this passage called the kenosis theory, believing that when Jesus came into the world, he gave up certain essential attributes of his divinity. That he rid himself of certain necessary attributes that he possessed as a deity, as God. And this text isn't saying that he emptied himself of divine powers or he emptied himself of divine attributes. Because if that were the case, then he wouldn't be fully God. And once again, we have a severe problem if that were the case. What this passage is saying is, although he was fully God, equally God in every way, He took a low position, a low status. In other words, he took the humble role. This is how our God entered humanity. And the beautiful picture, that uh, illustration that this text uh, presents to us is that the eternal member of the Godhead, the Son of God, stepped off of his throne and removed his royal robes and entered into dark and depraved humanity to save sinners. That's the picture that it paints. You see, Jesus left his riches and heavenly glory for poverty and humility. You see, he deserved all praise. He deserved all worship. He deserved all service. But he did not use his power, prestige, or position to be served by men or esteemed by men. Rather, he actually came to serve. He humbled himself. He was born of a virgin in a filthy, dark, dirty, stinky barn, lived a simple life as a carpenter's son and suffered on, and died on the cross to redeem us from our cosmic treason and our rebellion. That's what our God did. He came to die for us. He came humbly and quietly. Question number two is this. Why on earth would he come that way? Why would he come born into the world? I want to focus on the virgin birth. Why on earth? Why on earth would God choose that to be the way that the Messiah, that his son would enter into the world? Again, a very simple answer to that question. Because God declared that to be so. Throughout the history of humanity, God at numerous occasions has revealed to us that the son of God would be born into the world by a virgin. And that's how it had to happen. That's how it had to happen. And so God revealed this plan to us via prophets and prophecy is defined as uh, speaking or writing something that has been predicted about the future, something that is coming in the near future or distant future. And God used various prophets whom he spoke through and revealed this truth to, to explain it to all of us. And so the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus was all foretold and prophesied hundreds and thousands of years before he even arrived. I'm going to tackle some prophecy and fulfillment for this section. Number one is this. Jesus' mother will be a virgin. This was prophecy, number one, that I'm going to cover. That Jesus' mother would be a virgin. This was prophesied some 700 years before Jesus even existed. The prophecy comes from Isaiah 7.14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. Here's the fulfillment, 700 years later. Matthew 1.18.23 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was reminded to put her away secretly. which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, saying, and here's the fulfillment of Isaiah seven fourteen behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And just to warn you, I'm going to read a lot more text. So if you want to follow along, I'll let you know, and you can open up and read with me. This is a big deal. I'm going to talk about the implications of prophecy in a second. But are you aware that this uh, prophecy given to Isaiah, and then Isaiah prophesied this revealed truth that God had given him, this occurred 700 years, roughly 700 years before Christ was born. And we see the fulfillment of this in Matthew. Here's another one. Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2. This prophecy was 430 years before Christ ever existed. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. And we have the fulfillment in Luke 2, 1 through 7. It says, and it shall come to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Cyrenaeus was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Again, I want to clarify something. When I say before Christ existed, I mean Christ as man. We understand that the Son of God has always existed, but not always as man. So these prophecies are taking place thousands and hundreds of years before uh, the God-man, Jesus Christ, entered into humanity. And this is a particularly interesting passage that really depicts God's sovereignty over human events. We see Caesar Augustus orchestrating this this, uh, decree where they would have to go and be registered in another town Joseph and Mary were native to Nazareth. If Jesus were born in Nazareth, then he would not be the fulfillment of the prophecy in Micah 5.2 that says that he would be born in Bethlehem. So in God's sovereignty, he orchestrated this event to where Caesar would decree this thing and that Mary and Joseph would have to travel with child and that the baby would be delivered just at the right time. So that he would be born in Bethlehem just as the scriptures state. The last one that I'll cover is this: Jesus will be the promised king. This is a thousand years before Christ even uh, entered into human history. Second Samuel 7:12:16 says, "When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up y- your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul when I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And the fulfillment of this, we see in Luke 1, 32-33, that says, He will be great, as Gabriel says to Mary. He will be great, and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. These are just some really important prophecy and fulfillments that we see in Scripture. There's really no need for any human commentary on them. What they say is quite clear and evident. These are prophecies made hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus entered into history, and we see the fulfillment upon his arrival. Why in the world would God make these prophecies so far in advance? And and these uh, three reasons why I really believe God did this uh, kind of hit me hard when I was studying them. And so I think that there are three major implications Of why in the world God intended to give these prophecies so far in advance. And number one is this. For those of you who take notes. Number one is this. To inform people about Jesus and his work in advance. To inform people about Jesus and his work in advance. God told his people about the coming of the Savior. So that they would anticipate his arrival that they would have hope in his arrival, that they would put their trust and their faith and their hope in the coming Messiah that would save them from their sins so that they would put their hope, faith, and trust in something greater than themselves or in their deeds or, or to prevent them from worrying that they're sinners and that their sin would not be atoned and that they would spend eternity in hell. So God revealed this truth to his people so that they would have hope that they would anticipate anxiously the arrival of this Messiah that would save them from their sin. And what's interesting is that God told them who was coming. Who was coming? The son of God. He told them how he was coming. As we see in Isaiah 7, 14, 700 years before his birth, that he would be born by a virgin. He told them where he would come. We see that Micah 5.2 tells us that he would come in Bethlehem. He would be born in Bethlehem. And the last one is why God told them why he would be born. And that is to save them from their sins. And Zach Shalabaga will be covering that next week, which I'm really stoked, upon. <clears throat> stoked about. Number two, to provide a reasonable faith for those who don't believe. Why would God make these prophecies so far in advance to provide a reasonable faith for those who do not yet believe? Damian Kyle says this, when one looks at the portrait that God has painted of the coming of the Messiah through the old Testament scriptures, one realizes that in God calling upon me to believe in his son for the forgiveness of sins is not blind faith at all when we understand the prophetic basis behind his life and his claims, then we realize that it is the only reasonable thing to do with him. You see, the Old Testament scriptures are there for a very significant purpose. God desires those who do not yet believe those who want to scrutinize the word of God, to scrutinize our faith and call it a blind faith. He's provided us and preserved for us the old Testament scriptures so that we would have a reasonable and logical faith. Do some studying on the old Testament manuscripts. When were they dated? Okay. When were the new Testament uh, manuscripts dated? please tell me, tell me, explain that away. Please refute it. Because when we see the Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament fulfillment of those prophecies, we can only conclude that they must be true. I'm very passionate about this subject. Not prophecy in particular, but but the fact that Christianity is a sensible, true, and reasonable faith, not a blind one. Christianity isn't a feeling-based religion. It isn't based upon subjective spiritual experiences, as some like to believe and teach. I would ask this question. This person over here could have a religious experience. It is very real to them. But this person over here could never experience that religious event, that feeling. So because this person over here did not experience what this person over here did not experience, does that mean that it is true for them and not true for them? Our faith in Christ must be built upon the word of God. Not upon religious uh, spiritualities and, and experiences and feelings. Those are other religions. We know that the word of God is true because God has proven it through the prophecies and their fulfillments. We know that he has made promises and that he has kept his word and that he has fulfilled everything that he has promised. Therefore, we know it is true. And therefore, we know that Christianity is sensible, true, and reasonable. And once again, I must state this again. Our faith in Christ must, must be built upon the word of God. And that's why we teach the whole counsel of God's word at Calvary Chapel. I battle this in the high schools with Christians who are really into spiritualities, almost pagan. They get too caught up into the, uh, the, the charisma and the experience, and they forsake the word of God. And that's dangerous. It's very dangerous. Number three, and I think this is the greatest one, God made these prophecies so far in advance to demonstrate his faithfulness. God made these prophecies so far in advance to demonstrate his faithfulness. When God makes a promise, he is faithful to keep his word. And we can be absolutely certain about that. And I'm going to explain to you why. Theologically, we can affirm through God's special revelation What he's revealed to us about himself is that he is absolutely, positively sovereign and immutable. And I kind of see those two going hand in hand. I'll read you some passages. Malachi 3, 6 says, for I am the Lord God, I do not change. Change. Daniel four thirty five says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain him. So I see immutability and sovereignty kind of going hand in hand here. This is why. Theologically, we say God is immutable. Which means he's unchanging in his purposes, plans, and promises. I'll say that again. He's unchanging in his purpose, plans, and promises. This means when God makes a promise, because he's unchanging, he will keep that promise. We can also assert that when God makes a plan, we can rest assured That there will be nothing that can stop him from getting that plan done because he is sovereign. This means that he is in absolute control and has absolute authority over everything in the earth and outside of it. Sovereignty and immutability go hand in hand. When he promises something, we know that that promise will not change and when he planned something we know that nothing will stop him from getting it done when the trinity devised the most beautiful love story ever told they determined that the cross was plan a there was no plan b or c that's the way it was going to happen and he promised that he promised that in the garden Which I'll refer to at the end. Listen, Satan nor man can prevent God from accomplishing his holy will. If, it, if God desires it to be so, then he will make sure it gets done. Whether you're unfaithful, whether I'm unfaithful, whether I'm rebellious, or whether you're rebellious, or whether I'm sinful, or you're sinful, God will keep his promises. And he will make sure that what he plans is accomplished. Do we honestly believe that? I struggle with this. I teach it all the time. But practically, my life doesn't reflect it often. You see, worrying isn't a product of, of, of believing that God is sovereign. Sovereign. We can't say God is sovereign and worry. We can't say God is faithful and then doubt his promises. It doesn't make sense. And so we need to constantly be reminded of what God has done for us. What God has promised to us and what will come to pass because some 300 prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus in his life, death and resurrection. And there are many more that have yet to be fulfilled. And if you've fulfilled those, then we can be certain that they will fulfill the ones that have not yet come to pass. I want to talk a little bit more about this. Idols can't keep promises. Idols make promises that they cannot keep People make promises that they cannot keep business owners, politicians make promises that they cannot keep, even if they desire earnestly to keep them at one point or another, we will be unfaithful to our word on numerous occasions. I've promised something with good intention and have failed to keep that promise. On numerous occasions. What we have to stray away from is putting all of our faith, all of our trust, and all of our hope into people and things. Because people and things are broken. God isn't broken, He's unchanging. We're all changing, we're all affected. He's not. We have a cancer, he doesn't. We have a corrupt nature, he doesn't. We have an inherited sin and guilt, he doesn't. He's incapable of sinning. He's incapable of lying. We are. So what happens is when we put our faith and our trust and our hope in someone or something and and, and then they break that promise, What happens to us? We're unhappy, we're flustered, we're defeated, we're miserable. I would implore you to put all of your faith, hope, and trust in the Messiah, in in God, because He alone is faithful to complete everything, He's faithful to keep His word. I just need to keep saying this over and over again because we forget it too often. We do. We're gonna move on here. Here's probably uh, an extremely debated theological uh, position, if you will. Was Mary really a literal virgin? And why in the world is it important? What do we see in the text that we're covering tonight? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, in verse 35, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And then in verse 37, it says, For with God, nothing will be impossible. Was Mary really a virgin? In a word, yes. She was a literal virgin. I'm going to explain to you why that's important. But first I'm going to prove to you that she was. Because theological liberals, a lot of people in Christendom are doubting this truth. And it's sickening. Genesis 3:15 says And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first time the gospel is ever preached is here in this passage. Theologically, we call it the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first gospel in Latin. And God preached this first gospel in response to Adam and Eve's failure and Satan's victory. And what he says is, Satan, you may have won this battle, but you will certainly lose the war. And so he declares in response to their failure, in response to their rebellion, that a redeemer will come via a woman. Here's what's really interesting. The text records God revealing that He would bring a Redeemer into this world through the seed of a woman. But a woman doesn't bring a seed to the reproductive process, she brings an egg. but there's no father mentioned. There's never a father mentioned in scripture. And so what we can gather from this is that we're talking about a a miracle. We're talking about a a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit. we're talking about a supernatural act that will be performed by the spirit where the spirit will overshadow Mary and that he will somehow miraculously make it possible that, that the God man will be fully God and that he will also be fully human. But in one person, that's a miracle. And it would have been impossible if it were done any other way because why? Because God declared it to be so. Saying anything else is speculation. And we have to stray away from speculation. Human reasoning and philosophy. And resort to what God has revealed to us via revelation. And throughout scripture he declares that his son would become become a man. That he would come via a virgin. Virgin. This first gospel was preached. The virgin birth promised that a Messiah would be born fully God, fully man. And one person named Jesus Christ who would live and fulfill the law and the prophets and take a brutal and bloody beating for humanity. And that he would rise again to defeat Satan, sin and death to redeem us from ourselves, from eternal punishment. That someone would come that would crush Satan, that would accomplish what we are incapable of accomplishing. This is the gospel, that a Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer would come to restore what has been corrupted. A Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer, the Son of God who would make all things new. And he is currently making all things new. Currently reconciling all things to himself. And this first gospel was preached a thousand, thousands of years before Christ ever arrived. Let's jump a few thousand years. Isaiah declares that a virgin will give birth to a Messiah. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, we're talking about a virgin birth here. Here's what's a little difficult, I must admit, that theological liberals go to the original Hebrew here, and the word here used for virgin Hebrew is Alma, Alma, A-L-M-A-H. which means a virgin, a literal virgin, but can also legitimately be rendered as a young woman. And what they would say is that the text isn't saying that she would be a literal virgin. That's impossible. Verse 37 says, for with God, nothing is impossible. She was just a young woman. Okay, then. She was not yet married to Joseph. So it means that she had sexual relations with someone else outside of the, uh, outside of marriage. If that were the case, we have serious problems, friends, serious problems. One, God is a liar. Number two, God is not all powerful. And number three, I, I, I actually I, I don't want to mention, as some th- theologians claim him to be a blank son, B word son. <sighs> Here's where the positive news comes in. <laughs> Centuries before Jesus arrived, about seventy Jewish rabbis according to tradition came together and they translated the Hebrew scriptures, this Hebrew old Testament into Greek, which we call the Septuagint. The Greek word they chose to render this word Alma was Parthenos. And guess what Parthenos means? A literal virgin, nothing else. This is centuries before any Christian influence whatsoever that they understood the passage in Isaiah to be speaking, to be referring to a legitimate, literal virgin, not a young woman, not just a young woman. So Greek speaking Jews understood that a virgin would conceive a child. A virgin, a literal one. Is everyone on board? Why in the world is the virgin birth important? Why? Two reasons. Two reasons. Number one, for those of you who take notes, the virgin birth made it possible that Christ's full deity and full humanity were united in one person. That would have been impossible without the virgin birth. That Christ was both fully God and fully man in the womb in one person. Okay, before I explain to you how it kind of makes sense, I must tell you that Jesus was fully human. Okay? There's much debate circling. We have great teaching here that asserts that theologically and believes that. But there's many others out there who don't. There's those who doubt his divinity and those who doubt his humanity. Oh, he just appeared to be human as the ancient Greek philosophy docetism claimed. Or you have some, he wasn't God. He was a man, an angel or someone who worked himself up to divine status. The Protestant, Orthodox, and Catholic position theologically is hypostatic union. This is what we all should believe. This is what Calvary Chapel believes. This position was determined in 451 in the Council of Chalcedon. It states that Christ was both fully God and fully man and one, one person. Not two persons. Christ wasn't two separate persons. You never see Jesus talking to himself. You never see Jesus' divine nature speaking and battling uh, with his human nature. Jesus never refers to himself as we. It'd be odd. I'd have to admit. No, rather Jesus was both fully God, fully man in one person who we know as Jesus Christ. Okay, what we must also assert is this, that God, the God-man Jesus Christ has always existed as God, but he hasn't always existed as man. Okay, when he entered into humanity, humanity was added to his divinity, and he did not lose any of his essential attributes. He retained all of his attributes, his omniscience, his omnipotence, all of it. His eternality, his immutability, his sovereignty, he retained all of it. And what's amazing is that he humbled himself, even still. We see that Jesus had a human body. Luke 2:40 says, "The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him." We see Jesus became tired after traveling. John 4, 6 says, Jesus, wearied, tired, exhausted, as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. Jesus became hungry after his 40-day fast. In Matthew 4, 2, it says, he was hungry. Or, excuse me, 4, 2, not 42. Doesn't exist. Jesus became thirsty while he was on the cross. And John 19, 28 says, I thirst. Jesus was fully human in every way. Just like us, he grew, he developed. He experienced puberty, he experienced voice cracks. He got tired, he got hungry, he got thirsty, he had to learn. He was fully human. He was also fully God. Jesus healed the sick, raised the dead, calmed the seas, Turned loaves and fish uh, into uh, multiplied them to feed five thousand. He turned water into wine, and he claimed to be God, and that is why he was murdered. There's more that I can go into, but for the sake of time, I won't. I hope that we're all on the same page. The question was this, or the statement was this, rather. The virgin birth made it possible that he would be fully God and fully man. God could have, God could have, created Jesus as a man in heaven and sent him down. But then it'd have been really difficult for us to understand how he could have been fully human. It would have been difficult for us to relate. How was Jesus really human? I mean he wasn't born. He was fashioned in heaven. That wasn't the case. Likewise, we can can certainly say that God could have made it possible that, that he used two human parents to bring Jesus about and then added his divine nature miraculously to his human nature at some point in his life. But then it would have been really difficult for us to understand how he would have been fully God. So this process, the virgin birth, really helps us understand how this even came to be. How is it even possible that there is both a fully God and a fully man in one person? Uh, it's ridiculous. How, how, how can Jesus, being fully God, be all-powerful yet become tired? How, how can Jesus, being fully God... And fully man. He was, he was resting on, on, on the ship. Right? Because he was tired. Popped up. Calmed the seas. How can he both be, be, be omnipotent and tired at the same time? It doesn't make sense. How can, how can he be tempted with sin when the scriptures say that God cannot be tempted with evil? It's really mind boggling. But I would say this, what's true of one of the one nature is true of the person of Christ. What's true of the one nature is true of the person of Christ. Wrap your mind around that. (laughs) Number two, the virgin birth made it possible that Christ would have a true humanity without sinfulness. And this is what we'll, we'll, we'll close here. The virgin birth made it possible that Christ would have a true humanity without sinfulness. Now, some will say this. All human beings have inherited illegal guilt and sinful corruption through Adam. Adam, as Paul declares in Romans 5.12 and onward, that he was our representative or federal head, which means he represented all of us. And when he sinned, we all sinned. And what Paul says is through one man's transgression, we all became sinners. But Jesus did not have a human father. So the line of descent from Adam to Jesus was partially interrupted, which, which, which this can show us that, uh, or, or or somehow help us understand why Jesus did not have a moral corrupt, uh, a corrupt nature or be an object of wrath or be subject to wrath by nature. That's what some will say. Others will claim, such as Roman Catholics, that Mary was simply just sinless. That Mary was sinless. If Mary was sinless, then I would have to say, was her mother sinless? Was her mother's mother sinless? There had to be a miracle somehow. Because scripture says that all have sinned. No one does good. No one's righteous. No one. There isn't an an exception there. Everyone has inherited a corrupt nature. Everyone. This includes Mary. And the text here in Luke doesn't say that she, she earned favor. She found favor. Grace was freely given to her and grace is not earned. It's freely given. It's not merited by anything we do. God is rich in his his grace and his mercy. And out of his goodness, he chose Mary to bear his son. Not because she was good. Not because she was sinless. But because it pleased him. And she responded in faith. Here's the best solution here. Why Jesus didn't have a sinful nature. The best solution. Some will say, well, the, sin, the sin, uh, sin is passed down through the father's line. Some will say that. I have a better solution. It was the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. We can speculate all we want. We can have fun <laughs> theologically with it and try to, try to determine it. Try to figure it out. I love doing that. But really, it's all speculation. We see in the text that it's nothing else but the supernatural power and work of the Holy Spirit. That somehow, miraculously, the Holy Spirit prevented the transmission of sin from Joseph because he wasn't actually his father, and also, somehow, miraculously, prevented the transmission of sin from Mary. It was a miracle. It was a supernatural act. The only way God would be capable of fashioning a true human without a sinful nature was by performing a supernatural act, period. And that's what I can tell you is truth. Positively. And if you doubt the virgin birth, if you doubt how Jesus entered into the world as God declared it to be so, then you're doubting God's word to be true. You're doubting God's power. You're doubting his sovereignty. And verse 37, it simply says, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Nothing. God can perform exactly what he promised. And he promised it in the garden when Adam and Eve fell and Satan obtained victory over them. He promised it. And throughout the ages, thousands, hundreds of years that he would send his son into the world to save us. And that he would come by a virgin. And he did that because he's God. He was capable of doing that because nothing is impossible for a God who is completely and utterly omnipotent and sovereign. I'm going to close here. If there's anything out of this, me- anything in this message that you obtain that you go home with. I want you to, To understand that God is unbelievably faithful to his people. He promised to his people throughout the ages that he was sending someone to save them. And he fulfilled that promise. And he's also promised that one day, one day, we will no longer suffer. That we will experience eternal life with him forever. That he will return and he will make all things new. This is what he's promised to us. Do we honestly believe that? In the most painful sufferings, in the deepest moments of pain, do we believe these things to be true? Our king is a humble king. He's a good king. He treats us well. He pursues us, he loves us, he gives us grace, he gives us a new identity, he reconciles us, he forgives us, he gives us a new heart, a new family. This is the God we serve. And he came into the world to serve us, to die for us. And I'm unbelievably excited for for Zach's messages next week why jesus came why he came let's pray and the worship team will come up father god i admit that it's 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 extremely difficult for us to really really understand and believe Who you declared yourself to be. Our flesh wants to resist it. But God, I thank you for your covenant love for your people, that it is unrelentless, it is never stopping, it is everlasting. And Lord Jesus, even though we, we doubt and we worry, and I'm, and I'm certain, I'm sure that, that people doubted you throughout the ages when your son had not yet come. Was God really gonna fulfill this promise? Is it gonna come to pass or did he just forget about us? That wasn't the case. And Lord God, you, you, you've demonstrated your uh, your love for us and your faithfulness and and your sovereignty and and just your immutability and just the prophecy and fulfillment and the life death and resurrection of Christ and Lord even in the supernatural work in our lives that you've done that that you've uh, miraculously saved us and made a dead person spiritually new and God I thank you for this Lord Jesus, I love you and praise you. And once again, I pray, Holy Spirit, that this sermon would fall upon good soil and that you would cultivate it. And, and Lord Jesus, that it would just uh, motivate us to be your witness, motivate us to worship you in a greater way. Lord, whenever we're speaking on uh, theological matters such as this, Lord, it should produce an amazing doxology. Lord, the more we know about you, it should, it should move us to wanna worship you more and love you more. And so, God, we love you and praise you for what you've revealed to us uh, through your word or the self-revelations you've made about yourself, Lord, to, to, to give us confidence in you and not in our flesh, to give us hope, faith, and perseverance, Lord Jesus. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand. of our God and King,
0: lift up your voice and with the sing of oh, praises.